All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to our radio show, Veterans for Peace, Chapter 92 in Seattle. And we have three guests that we're excited to have. We've had all three of them on the show before. Um, before we get going, we are going to talk about um, the war with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, but I'm going to have each one of our guests just briefly um, tell you who they are. So first, we'll go with Kelly. Um, go ahead. Hi there, my name is Kelly Wadsworth, and it's nice to be here um, with all of these guests for this important topic. I have been a member of Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 for a couple years, and I have since moved to Salem, Oregon, and am working for peace and peace-related activities in the state just to the south of Washington. And uh, when did you serve? Or when were you in the military? Some people don't like to say serve. So when were you in the military? Yes. Thanks, Michael. I mm -hmm. served from 2001 to 2011 um, as a chaplain. And I deployed from 2008 to 2009. Right. And where did you deploy to? I deployed to Iraq. All right. Thank you very much. And Randy Rowland, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Randy Rowland. Uh, I'm a member of uh, VFP Chapter 92 here in Seattle. Um, I was convicted of mutiny while I was in the Army in 1968. And I've been, uh, I like to say that the Vietnam War saved my life because I was destined to be one of those right-wing assholes. Uh, but somehow I got turned around in the correct way and have been a, uh, a veteran for peace ever since in one form or another. And, um, well, that's great. And what were you, what were you when you were in the military? I was a medic. Right. Yeah. And then we have Jeff Patterson. Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michael. And uh, great meeting you, Kelly, Randy. Um, I'm Jeff Patterson. I am um, a member of the National Board of Directors for Peace at this point. And I uh, spent the last uh, 15, 16 years as director of Courage to Resist, an organization that uh, is dedicated to supporting uh, war resistors uh, currently in the US military. Um, I served slash was an indentured servant of the US military uh, from uh, 1986 to 1990. Uh, when uh, a few days shy of my uh, end of active duty service, I was stop lost and ordered to go fight uh, in Iraq um, during the first Gulf War. And uh, by that time, I realized I was a terrible Marine because I did not want to kill anybody. And um, I also was concerned about uh, increased US military intervention in the Middle East in general. Um, I refused to deploy and uh, was court-martialed. And the end, I ended up with a other than honorable discharge uh, from the US military. But I did uh, serve four years active duty as a artillery, uh, uh, artillery guy. Right, you know, I keep forgetting that. So one of the things Jeff and I have in common, other than the fact that we both served in artillery, is that we were both in military at the time of the Gulf War, and Jeff had enough sense to say no, and I didn't at the time. Um, 
And so I went and I'm not even sure, I might not have, I would have understood, but I might not have liked it um, that you didn't, but I definitely understood because um, I always believe people have to make a choice about whether or not they want to go fight. So uh, now I admire you. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Michael. Yeah, definitely. So um, we're, we want to talk about the Russian and Ukraine war. And what I want to do real quick, uh, it'll take me a few minutes, is to try to frame the discussion with some facts. Um, so we know here in the U.S. that we're told a lot about, we hear over and over that this war uh, was unprovoked, um, that Russia just uh, invaded and there was no provocation whatsoever. Um, so while I don't agree with going to war, I don't think war is the answer. Um, and I do think people have the right to defend themselves, but going to war is not the answer. I don't think that this was an unprovoked war. And I wanted to just say a few facts and everyone would also be able to say, obviously, how you feel about this, but just some facts. Um, I got these, the first things from Wikipedia. And I know some people are like, Wikipedia, that's not a good place to get information. But these things that I'm going to read real quickly um, are pretty well known. And it was just in the easy place to get it. So I'll start off with talking about what NATO is. So NATO, for people who might not know, is North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, and it is an intergovernmental, intergovernmental military alliance between 30 member states, 20, 28 of those are European states, the other two are the United States and Canada. And it was established in the aftermath of World War II. NATO is a system of collective security. Its independent member states agree to defend each other against attacks by third parties. It was established during the Cold War in response to the threat posed by the Soviet Union, or at least the perceived threat. The alliance remained in place after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and has been involved in military operations in the Balkans, Middle East, South Asia, and Africa. NATO's headquarters is located in. Brussels, Belgium. Now, now I'm going to talk about NATO expansion um, because this is one of the things that uh, Russia has talked about as being a reason for uh, attacking the Ukraine. So in 1990, the Soviet Union and NATO reached an agreement that a reunified Germany would not join NATO under West Germany's pre-existing membership, although restrictions were agreed to on the deployment of NATO troops on former East German territory. The dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 led to a number of former Warsaw Pact and post-Soviet states to initiate discussions about joining NATO. Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic became NATO members in 1999 amid much debate within NATO itself and Russian opposition. And, and many um, politicians here in the United States thought it was not a good idea. NATO then formalized the process of joining the organization with membership action plans, which aided the accession of seven Central and Eastern European countries shortly before the 2004 Istanbul summit. These countries were Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Two countries on the Adriatic Sea, Albania and Croatia joined on April 1st, 2009. The most recent member states joined Joining NATO were Montenegro in June 2017 and North Macedonia in, in March of 2020. So after expressing their desire to join NATO in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden formally submitted their applications to join NATO in May 2022. 
As of 2022, three other countries have formally expressed their membership aspirations, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Georgia, and the Ukraine. Joining the alliance is a, is a debate topic in several other European countries outside the alliance, including Ireland, Moldova, and Serbia. So now I just want to read something real quick from some people that we know, um, Medea Benjamin, who is the co-director and founder, co-founder of Cold Pink, and a guy named Nicholas Davies, who is author of Blood in Your Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of the Rock. And he's a researcher for Cold Pink. And this is from an article that was written actually two days or, or published two days before the invasion, February 1st. Well, this is three days before the invasion, but the invasion started February 4th. Um, the most critical events that have been airbrushed out of the West political narrative are the violation of agreements that Western leaders made at the end of the Cold War not to expand NATO into Eastern Europe and the US backed coup in Ukraine in February. 2014. Western mainstream media accounts instead date the crisis in Ukraine back to Russia's reintegration of Crimea in 2014 and the decision by ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine to succeed from Ukraine as the Lonhas and Dantes, I'm sorry, I'm not saying this correctly, um, People's Republic. But these were not unprovoked actions, they were responses to the US backed coup in which an armed mob led by the neo-Nazi right sector militia stormed the Ukrainian parliament, forcing the elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, Yanukovych, members of his parliament to flee for their lives. The remaining members of parliament voted a new form of government, subverting the political transition and plans for a new election that had publicly been agreed to the day before, after meeting with foreign ministers of France, Germany, and Poland. The U.S. role in managing the coup was exposed by a leak in 2014 audio recording of Assistant Secretary of State Victor Newland and U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt working on their plans, which include sidelining the European Union and shoehorning in U.S. protege Arinci Yatsenyuk as Prime Minister. You can see I'm pretty bad at it at these names. So I just wanted to um, kind of frame, at least from, uh, I guess, juxtaposition to some degree, what we are constantly hearing in Western media when you listen to mainstream media, and some facts in terms of what happened that the Russians have said are some of the reasons that they have invaded Ukraine. Now again, and then I'm gonna have you all begin to say your thoughts on this. I am not saying this to say that these are good reasons for Russia to invade. For me personally, there were many other things Russia could have done um, short of invading Ukraine. So I do not think uh, it was the right thing to do, but we can't act as if the United States doesn't have some culpability. What I've always said is there's culpability by the United States, but responsibility um, by Russia. Uh, and then lastly, there, there's one other thing that's really important, and then I will promise you I will be quiet. So on Wednesday, let us not forget President Bush kind of called himself out when he was talking about the invasion of Ukraine. And I had the quote somewhere, maybe 
I'll find it later and read it. But um, instead of saying Ukraine, he actually said Iraq. So he was talking about himself. So he ended up calling himself out. Um, so it's interesting that here in the US, there's like amnesia about how we have acted in the world and how we have invaded countries. And now all of a sudden Russia's this bad monster when we've basically done the same thing. And I think there's two monsters. Um, Russia has, is being a monster now and the US has been a monster for 20 years in how it has invaded countries around the world. Now, and I've said my part, the floor is open. Well, I'll start because nobody else is. Um, the first thing I think you're right, uh, Michael, the U.S. has been the, the top imperialist gangster uh, for many decades. Um, and in my opinion, uh, Russia you know, sees a political opening and they are acting as an imperialist gangster this time. Obviously, they're a, a smaller gangster, but that doesn't make their invasion any less horrific for the people of Ukraine. And I think that's where I want to underscore is, is as we debate these political um, uh, discussions and put blame on, on NATO and, and US and Iraq, there are ten, tens of millions of Ukrainians <laughs> being directly affected by this war, uh, 10 million Ukrainians being displaced internally. Uh, ten, you know, tens of thousands being shipped against their will out of uh, Ukraine to the nation of the invading army. Um, there's some uh, horrific stuff. So I, I don't want to be involved in a movement that wants to gloss over those uh, crimes against the people just so it can make some political points on um, whataboutism, I guess. So... And I don't want to be involved with a movement that sort of tries to uh, eliminate uh, the right to self-determination of the people uh, of Ukraine uh, and their right to lead their own struggle. And in this case, uh, a struggle for national liberation against a imperialist uh, army. Um, and then having said that, uh, I agree with you <laughs> that the U.S. has a lot of culpability. So. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly? Um, when the invasion first happened, um, I was very much not paying attention to NATO um, or what was happening and, and it just kind of found myself in this place of like, wow, like, what does one do? Like, what should we do? This is, this seems very bad. Um, because it's true, like what Jeff mentioned, the governing, I'll just say, maybe I'll say the loudest narrative was that, that awful Russia and that terrible Putin, like, like that was it. And it's not that I disagree with that, but since that time, like since, you know, now that it's been a couple months, I've been trying to pay attention to like, well, what, it, what is the path to peace? Like yelling over and over again about how horrible Putin is, I don't think is going to be a constructive path, like to actually get anywhere. I right. don't think it's, I don't think it helps the people of Ukraine, like our, our moral yelling, um, 
I don't think actually gets very much done. Um, so, so I've kind of moved to the deep philosophical place of our slice of the pie. Like, what is our slice of the pie to solve? Uh, and since then, I've started paying more attention to NATO and what have been these markers along the way, what the expansion has done. And so I, I've been coming back to this question of, are we investing as much energy and time in international peace as we are in the expansion of NATO? Like, are we, are we dedicating equal efforts to preventing war as we are to kind of making it um, or fostering it or being parts of conflicts? So, uh, yeah, so I think I've come to a place of like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of blame to go around. But as an American, my slice of the pie is America. Like, and what is our, what have we done that might have fostered it or made it worse? What can we do now to make it better? Um, I don't see how increased military action is going to make anything better. Um, it seems like the best way to, to make it better is to understand how we got there in the first place. Right. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, I want to point out I, somebody, I heard this, I didn't invent this, but uh, um, somebody uh, said uh, that it's useful to talk about the difference between a conflict and war. Mm. You could have a conflict with your neighbor over the property line or whether his bar dog barks too much. But, you know, generally speaking, you're supposed to resolve that conflict by not doing something like shooting him or burning his house down or invading his property or any of the other stuff. And, you know, your neighbor could even provoke you quite a bit. And that doesn't mean that you should shoot him or burn his house down or any of that other business. In this particular situation, I'm pretty sure that that the responsibility for the conflict lies with the U.S. I'm pretty sure that the responsibility for the war mm. Uh, you know, the decision to invade um, pretty much, um, you know, lies with Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one interesting way to kind of think about it. But in the part about the conflict, you know, there is an incredible amount of provocation. You know, um, it started uh, with, a, with a U.S. engineered coup way back when. Actually, it started even before that because the U.S. had promised not one inch towards Russia. Um, and has continually violated that. The U.S. then unilaterally broke uh, nuclear treaties one after another with Russia, um, uh, in which crept, you know, uh, uh, strategic armaments closer and closer to Russia. Right before the uh, before Russia invaded, um, as Ray McGovern, uh, um, one of the VFP and other organizations guy. Uh, uh, who was a CIA analyst for uh, of Russian things, um, uh, pointed out that Putin kept saying, look, you know, it's one thing if you're sending a missile from the United States where we've got 30 minutes to decide the fate of the world. It's another thing if you're sending a missile from Poland or someplace that's right on our border where we've got five minutes to decide the fate of the world. And that, you know, if, if, if people who are old enough to think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis 
can remember how upset the United States was when, when there was a possibility that there would be Soviet missiles in Cuba, which, you know, you just can't defend against something that's close, that, that's that close to you. Um, why uh, it's easy to understand why the Russians would have red lines, which the U.S. has just ever so eagerly violated one after another. And, you know, and at this point, I think we can blame Russia for the conflict, U.S. for the, I mean, Russia for the war, but the U.S. very much for the conflict. And as, you know, several of the American leaders have said, we are now happily going to fight until the last Ukrainian. And, um, you know, the U.S., it, it's, it's not just, it's a civil war in Ukraine that, uh, that Russia entered um, uh, on one side of it. And, um, and the U.S. hasn't entered in the sense of putting its own troops in there but has very much entered in a proxy fashion. And the U.S. is even calling it a proxy war now. And so the problem is that when you think about well, how do you end a war, usually you think, okay, let's have a negotiated settlement. But the vested interest of the U.S. at this point is not for a negotiated settlement, U.S. government, that is to say, not the people, um, because they're pouring every kind of armament they can into, um, into Russia, uh, I mean, into Ukraine, and letting the Ukrainians take the you know, take the, the, the blows, but uh, they're, you know, they have said our goal is to, you know, destabilize Russia, weaken Putin, blah, 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 and, you know, and the other point I want to make real quick before I ramble on two more, there's two points I want to make, and then I'll shut up for, for my first <laughs> round here. Uh, one is this is a war between two capitalist countries. There was a time in my life where that, if this war had been happening, it would have been a war between one that at least called itself a socialist country and one a capitalist country. But at this point, you know, the Soviet Union does not exist anymore. And, uh, you know, what exists is Russia, which is clearly a capitalist country, same as the United States. It's not as big as the United States or as bad as the United States, but it's very much a capitalist country. And so for people who are not at all for supporting imperialist war or for supporting wars between capitalists, you know, it's a proxy war between two capitalist countries. Now, in the United States' side of it, because it's a proxy war for us, it means that the Ukrainians are dying and suffering. We're just supplying all the bullets and the missiles and the, you know, howitzers and et cetera. But the Ukrainians are the ones that are taking the punishment. You know, for the Russian side, well, the, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians are dying uh, um, on that side and also the Russian troops, of course. And in fact, some people in Russia, because, the, you know, there have been, strikes even into you know russian territory so at this point russians and uh are dying americans are not and ukrainians on both sides of this are dying and so it's a really kind of a sucky situation how do you solve that well that would be diplomacy you would think except that the united states has no interest whatsoever in being diplomatic because they're trying to undercut a rival and you know expand even further the fundamental nature of capitalism is expand or die the final point I want to make, and then I'll shut up, is that Russia is, after all, after the United States, the most powerful nuclear country in the world. And so here we have this, this proxy war between two nuclear powers, both of whom seem to have kind of forgotten about the principle of nuclear winter. And I just want to remind people that what re about what nuclear winter means, because you know, we so cavalierly have this war where the Ukrainians get to suffer and the U.S. gets to gain some ground for economic purposes or control of the world purposes or whatever. 
But the stakes here really are the survival of humanity, certainly the survival of almost all of humanity and certainly the survival of, uh, of civilization. Nuclear winter, the concept is that all it would take is a so-called minor nuclear war to put enough um, soot and ash and dirt and stuff up into the stratosphere where the rain doesn't rain it out. And it would take probably something like 10 years for that stuff to filter back down to the earth. And in that time, it would blanket like 80 or 90% of the sunlight that comes to the earth, which would create in, in most of the temperate parts of the world, for instance, temperatures that would go below zero every day, all year long. And so your vegetation would die and people would starve to death around the world. And at the end of those 10 years, basically, if any human survived, it would be just very few. And, you know, this, the kind of, they, they, they figured out nuclear winter by actually studying, you know, the other planets. But, uh, but then when they started figuring it out back in the 1980s, they said, wow, Carl Sagan, another scientist. And they said, gee whiz, look what's going to happen if we have these, if, a nuclear war. A nuclear war between India and Pakistan, both of whom have nuclear weapons, but very few compared to Russia and the United States, would be enough to set off nuclear winter. Yeah. Uh, basically, if one country blew the other one out of the water and the other guy didn't even get a chance to survive, it would be enough to set off nuclear winter. So nuclear winter is like no thing to mess with. And, and these countries have kind of tried to pretend, both Russia and the United States, have tried to pretend that somehow uh, that nuclear winter doesn't really count anymore. Well, nothing's changed about the science. You know, nuclear winter is very, very real. And, and so when we're talking about this war in Ukraine, it's not just that, oh, we're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, you know, and, and, and use them as the, you know, shields, you know, that will allow the U.S. to weaken Russia or something like that. But, you know, Russia's got an awful lot of nuclear weapons, and I doubt that they're right. just going to go down like with a whimper, you know, just like a, a, a please, thank you, and a whimper. They're going right. to try to kick ass as hard as they can. And at some point, since their leadership and our leadership discounts nuclear winter nowadays, right. um, uh, you know, we are talking about a very volatile, very dangerous situation, not just for the Ukrainians, not just for the Russian soldiers that seem to be dying in large numbers, but for everybody in the world, northern and southern hemisphere right right i haven't heard the term nuclear winter in quite some time honestly so uh, thank you for reminding us of that um and it's crazy us humans we have both ends of the spectrum we're warming the planet from our behavior and we have the possibility of nuclear winter too i mean it's kind of we're in some ways we're totally absurd um so I just wanted people to know that you can go to, there's this BBC uh, map that if you do a Google search about NATO expansion, that shows um, NATO expansion since 1997. And there's 14 countries that it shows. And it's a good map because it shows um, just how close the NATO expansion has been to Russian border, just to give people some idea of US creating a conflict, which is a good way to look at it, or culpability, as I've said. Um, so one thing just to ask you, I know for me, and, and I, I think Jeff, you spoke well to this, um, about, well, all of you have about the people who are dying, um, in the Ukraine and 
you know, for the last 20 years, we've been resisting U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, really the whole global war on terror. And, you know, it's taken a toll on me in terms of the people that I know, not personally, but I know have died because of U.S. military action. Then people's parents that I've met who have died um, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, like Sue Niederer or Cindy Sheehan, you know, so Gold Star parents. Now, I don't know anybody in, 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 the, in Ukraine, you know, none of those parents. And U.S. isn't actually dropping the bombs, but I'm still seeing the destruction and in some ways more vividly um, than we saw what we were doing as a nation. I'm just wondering how has that, how has that impacted you all as, as, you know, former soldiers or former military people? Well, I, I think I could, I think, well, one, members of Veterans for Peace were pretty, we have a lot of different divergent opinions, right, on the yeah. Russia-Ukraine uh, war, and, and some of that's coming out through this meeting. Uh, but I think we all agree on the inconsistency of, of what uh, Americans are allowed to see on the impacts of war. Uh, Ukraine, we get to see it pretty up and close, in part right. as because uh, you know more cell phones, uh, more social media shares. That country is still connected to the internet a lot of ways, so you know we get to see these videos uh, if we choose to, and pretty horrific. We didn't we didn't get that um, with with the Iraq War, and you had to look pretty pretty darn hard. Um, and then you might have been accused of uh, some federal crime if you found, uh, you know, mm -hmm. some anti-U.S. video related to our invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan, um, right? So, so the question is, you know, if 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 Americans knew, right, it, uh, what the reality of the wars were for the average uh, uh, Iraqi or uh, Afghani, uh, would it have been different? Um, you know, and, and I guess for peace uh, people, you, you want to hope the answer is yes, I, I suppose. Um, I'll say that. Um, but um, I also, um, I feel like I'm a contrarian in some uh, VFP circles as well. And I'll, so I'll just uh, th throw this out there. You know, Michael, you're, you know, you're talking about the expansion of NATO. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's a great, uh, thing that you know the left has gathered around, but are we really going to make inroads if we don't acknowledge that you know the people of those countries more or less chose to yeah. to join NATO for reasons, and one of the reasons is well we're seeing it today with a with a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, before uh, 2014, the, the vast majority of Ukrainians opposed joining NATO. Uh, Russia uh, invades uh, Crimea. Russia uh, operatives help uh, seize an uprising in the in the eastern part of the country, and you see a gradual uh, shift from a, a pro-neutrality, pro-Russian stance to a pro-Western stance of then trying to engage themselves with the EU. Um, we talk about uh, a U.S. back coup. Um, in 2014, the left does. 
whereas most Ukrainians see it as a, a civil war, which Randy pointed out to, where one side uh, overcame the other. A, a pro-Western side uh, generally overcame a pro-Eastern side. And the pro-Eastern side, uh, Russia, uh, branded that as a neo-Nazi uh, uprising. And it's important to say when, it's important to note that when Russia has claimed Nazis run Ukraine, what they mean is nationalists, meaning people in Ukraine who want to identify as Ukrainians more so than they want to identify as, as part of the Russian Federation mm -hmm. or the Russian Empire. Um, and if, if the narrative was true that somehow, uh, you know, the, the majority of pro-Eastern Ukrainians have been subjugated by uh, a dictatorship uh, chosen and led by the United States, there's no way that the Ukrainian uh, people would have beat back the invasion over the last 90 days. Uh, what we see here is uh, uh, the Ukrainian people uh, asserting their uh, right to exist as a country and exerting their self-determination and dying for it. And as peace people, uh, we can, uh, you know, say, oh, that's, that's bad, and it certainly is. But VFP was also founded on the right of self-determination of peoples in Central America to choose their own governments mm -hmm. uh, in opposition to U.S. imperialism. And yeah, I find it's I find it hard that the tables are changed. Now I'm, I'm supporting the right of self-determination against <laughs> a different empire, mm -hmm. but I don't see any other consistency as a, as a person who wants to stand generally for the underdog when they're being uh, bullied. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and if you if you go to example, what does Russia want from Ukraine? Well, it wants another Belarus, and you can look at um, the president. You know, of Lashenko, he's a clown. He's a mm -hmm. you know he's subservient uh, to Putin. There's no actual uh, actual government that represents the people in Belarus. So if I'm Ukrainian, I'm looking as to that as what I may become. Well, yeah, that's that wouldn't be something high on my list. Right. So I guess that's my that's my pushback that uh, that we accept um, a Russian narrative of what happened of, of U.S. imposing NATO on other countries. Well, you know, those countries actually had a say in that and they generally uh, chose it for for real reasons. So and if we discount those actual reasons, does that really advance our long-term goal for conflict resolution and peace? And right. that's what I question. No, I agree with you. Um, I think when Kelly and I and Mandy and Mike, we had a real talk before um, the war actually started. We were speculating whether or not um, Russia was going to invade. And one of the things I talked about is how this conflict um, Gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now for some reason, but he was a French guy who came, um, who came to the U.S. and um, looked hopeful and, uh, and toured the U.S. And he talked about Russia and the United States, a conflict. This was like in the 1800s when he came. And he talked about there would be a conflict between the two nations because he saw that these were two nations that basically imperialists, you know, and certainly... Um, Russia has expanded and, detra and, and detracted or 
of course, became smaller um, back and forth over the years. This is a long, one of the things that's actually happened here is a continuation of the, the major power conflict in Europe. So, um, so yeah, those countries have good reason to be afraid. If you look at since 1500, um, if you can just look at since 1500, the history of Europe, and you can see why these nations would have, um, have fear of Russia. So I, I, I agree with that for sure. Well, I do want to point out though, because, and, and you are agreeing, you know, the United States has its own reasons for what is done and, and no one's hands are, are totally clean, you know? And last thing I'll say about that is I kind of look at it like what we call the French and Indian war here in the US, but really was like the first world war it was called something else in Europe. Um, and when the French were supporting certain native people here, and certain native people supported the, the Brits here in the United States. Um, who, there was two imperial powers, but who was losing out? The native people, the indigenous people, uh, but the, the two imperial powers were using the politics of what was happening between those people in order to, for their own gains. And that's basically what we have happening right now in the Ukraine. Russia's got its reasons for what it's doing. United States has its reasons for what it's doing. And the Ukrainians are the ones dying for it. You know? So, I'm sorry, Kelly. Um, so, when you asked about Iraq and the, the, the slip that happened this week. Yeah. From, yeah. Um, and I, I think there, I think it's a, it's like an invitation for our collective psyche. Like it's, it's easier to see something, you know, when it's not yours, when you're a little bit on the outside looking in, which I think is what many of our experiences are with Ukraine and Russia. Like, you know, we're a little bit on the outside watching something and many of us horrified, like, oh, that's what, that's what an invasion by an imperialist power looks like right and then all the media coming out of from ukraine's perspective right oh that's what it looks like to be invaded right i'm curious if we will be able to take the next collective step of reflection and apply some of that like oh is that what iraq looks like mm -hmm. like it is that is that what happened what if what if all the Iraqis had had cell phones? Would we have allowed those images, those narratives, those stories, that destruction to hit our weight, our media waves? And would we have paid attention? Would we have thought of that the same way we think of Ukrainians, um, right? But I think that that is a more painful step of self-reflection, like that is a, that cuts a little deeper right into our own American identity because I think it's very tempting to have like the good moral narrative, like we're, we're always the good ones. And so therefore whatever we do is always good, um, right? Like to be a little, to, to get a little deeper at that. Um, I don't know if I'm super optimistic that we will do that. Um, my sense is that sort of our, our second Iraq encounter is, is just kind of sliding and fading into history without much, 
right? Without, without much discussion, without much reflection, um, the numbers of veterans that were in that one and the first one are very low proportionally compared to the Vietnam, the classes of Vietnam, World War II. Like those were just much bigger groups. And I worry that those got processed a little more just because there were simply more. Mm. Yeah. Whereas kind of all the Middle East conflicts, just in terms of numbers of Americans have, have had less and therefore kind of, it's just talked about less, it's processed less. There's just less veterans kind of seasoning the general society. Um, one of my wonderings in the past few weeks about NATO, I mean, I understand kind of the basic concept, you know, it's like safety in numbers, um, kind of the, the more you have, the bigger block you have, the safer you are. I mean, like that part, kind of, I think makes some intuitive sense, right. but I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, and then there's, there's kind of a critique that its expansion is part of what has irritated the conflict and all of that makes sense to me. But then there's sort of the other half. I'm like, well, if NATO were just bigger and wouldn't we actually have more peace in the sense of, well, if more countries joined and more countries joined, like eventually wouldn't all the countries be in this place of like, well, an attack on one is an attack on all. And so it's a place of- That's the UN, of, isn't it? Right, exactly. It's right, <laughs> like if you, take it, if, you take, if you take the concept down the road, you end up in a, oh, like a place of like, oh, well maybe the world should not attack itself, um, right? Like a much more, yeah. right now it's only a regional collective concept. But I think many of our other processes, like our trade, the internet, travel, in some ways is pushing us. And climate change especially is inviting us to a bigger consciousness, like a bigger way of thinking about the world as a collective um, rather than you know, all these different pieces. And so that collective, that collective place, what does, what does war making look like in that collective place? Right. Uh, right? Like you're like, oh, well, you know, I wonder if we can get to that place where it's nonsense and it, what does it, what does it solve? Like at the end of the day, what does it do? Yeah, I hope we get there too. And I do agree with you. There are some things that are inviting us. Uh, to think more in a collective way. And the question I think is, are we going to be able to evolve quickly enough to do it? And uh, I wonder, you know, from where we were to where, what we are now as homo sapiens, there were some changes, uh, you know, expansion of our brain or whatever those different things were. Are, are we do is that what we need some other you know actually evolutionary thing for us to take mm -hmm. the next step or <laughs> or can we do it with what we have you know i don't know it's a scary idea but maybe maybe we can't i don't know um go ahead Randy. well uh first of all i jeff i want to thank you for being the contrarian um uh because uh it is a kind of uh 
sticky situation where, you know, as much as I think that our first duty as Americans is to talk about the American wrong in this stuff, we can't ignore, you know, the fact that, uh, um, that Russia invaded Ukraine. And, um, and if you ask the Ukrainians what they hope will happen, you know, at least the ones that are in the parts other than the Russian speaking, you know, the Donbass area or something, um, uh, you know, it was a civil war. Um, but uh, I imagine if you ask the Ukrainians in the areas that uh, are not, you know, inherently for Russia, um, what they hope would happen, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't say that we're that they're hoping for Russia to overrun them. And, and, and in all honesty, I'm not for, you know, you know, uh, much as I criticize the U.S. for, you know, pushing the conflict and I push and I criticize Russia for starting the war, as I was saying before, but uh, but. Uh, you know, do I want Russia to overrun Ukraine? No, I don't. You know, uh, even though I think that Ukrainians got set up by the U.S. in many ways, um, you know, uh, you know. But at any rate, um, yeah. I think that uh, I want to make two points. I guess the first is that most of the time, Americans and the world, um, certainly um, the world, when it's um, when it's uh, the U.S. who is invading somebody, which has often enough been the case. Um, those wars get censored substantially. And one of the roles of veterans, of course, is to go back to the civilian population and say, you guys don't have any idea what's going on. You don't know that. I mean, we're messing up civilians here. You know, I mean, this is not noble. It's not good. It's horrible in every kind of way you can think. And that's kind of historically been the role of the anti-war veteran uh, is to bring home the war and bring home that information that most of the folks are getting deprived of because of the fact that uh, that the US controls you know the narrative in, in in many ways and in this particular one while it's a different capitalist country that has invaded somebody and so the US is not hiding the horror because part of the US's you know plot so to speak you know or its tactics is to make Russia look as bad as possible in the in the eyes of the world and so unlike most of the American wars where we invade people uh, or just try to starve them into submission, um, why um, in this one, all of a sudden, we're getting to actually see the horrors of war. And, and it's not that the horrors of war are more horrible here than they were in any of these other wars. It's just that we get to see them in a way that we normally don't get to see them. And when that, you know, so, you know, the light is shining on war, but war as our organization, Veterans for Peace, uh, you know, war really, really sucks. I mean, it really, really is horrible. And, and, and so in a sense, I think it's important for us to understand politically kind of the ins and outs of how we got to where we are, you know, who did what to who, bloody, bloody, all that stuff. But I think it's also important for us to see at this moment the horrors of war and to say, this is what we've been saying all along. These are the horrors of war. Um, and just like right now, a lot of folks, for instance, are looking to find out stories about Russian soldiers who choose humanity over uniform, you know, who resist their orders to mess up the Ukrainians in some way. Um, uh, and we're looking for GI resistors in Russia. And, you know, we would love to support them, right? Because, hey, we're GI resistors ourselves. You know, we like GI resistors uh, who choose humanity over uniform. And so stories about Russian GI resistors, boy, would that, those float my boat all the pieces, you know? 
at the same time, I think it's important, you know, when Americans are so eagerly looking for those stories about GI resistance in, among, in the Russian army, to remind people that Americans, when faced with this very similar moral situation, have in fact uh, uh, oftentimes resisted. You know, um, you know, Jeff Patterson in this conversation sat down on the tarmac, you know, and, and refused to go off to that war, you know, because he had a clue up front that it wasn't the right thing, see? Uh, and so I think that it's per, a really good time to talk about GI resistance to war and um, and the, that that has happened in the United States, which is substantial amount, you know, over the years in different wars. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is um, rules-based order. You know, uh, the, the United Nations, Michael, you just referred to the United Nations and how that's supposed to be the organization that binds the world together. Right. And of course, one of the principles of the United Nations is the sovereignty of various nations that nobody is supposed to, no other nation is supposed to interfere with the internal affairs of a sovereign nation, which of course includes invading them, but not just invading them, but you're not supposed to mess with their elections. You're not supposed to use unfair pressure or weird, you know, menacing of, of any kind or any of that other kind of business to you know, kind of like bring a different nation to their knees. It's, that's the United Nations Charter and, and its principles. The United, the United States has for some time now had very little truck with the United Nations because it, it, it's, and it has substituted a technical term, which if people aren't familiar with it, they should start looking for it. Because once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. It's kind of like when your buddy buys a, a kind of car that you haven't been paying attention to, then all of a sudden you'll start seeing them everywhere. Well, start looking for this term, and the term is used by the United Na by the United States quite a bit, and it's called rules-based order. And the way it works is the United States has diligently worked through the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and all of its kind of this and that and everything else to create a situation where the United States is on the top of the dung heap and everybody else is more or less subordinate to it. And that's what the United States calls the rules-based order. Right. So when China, for instance, talks about uh, the United Nations and the importance of, you know, the United Nations and everybody like that, the United States responds, but uh, we have to punish countries that won't obey, who don't go along with the rules-based order. Well, there is no such thing as a rules-based order, except for the United Nations, that the various nations have decided to have. When the United States talks about the rules-based order, what they're really talking about is rules that the United States unilaterally has set upon the rest of the world. And when you don't obey those rules, like let's say um, um, Venezuela, you know, who who really didn't want the World Bank dictating what the price of rice in Venezuela was going to be, and 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 so they tried to resist the rules-based order. See, they tried to resist that stuff. So the United the United States then puts sanctions and all kinds of stuff and threatens war and every other kind of thing. And it's all done not because the, 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 uh, Venezuela has violated something that the United Nations has has said, but uh, but ha because they have violated a mandate that the United States has tried to impose upon them, and the. Uh, form where a lot of the war part of this punishment for violating the rules-based order comes from is NATO. You know, yeah. if you think about NATO in terms of the Iraq war, NATO in terms of the Afghan war, NATO in terms of, you know, all, all kinds of shit. Randy, why, you know, I, it's, I, it's I'm sorry. violation I, of the rules-based order. Right, right. Thank you. 
you're right. And and uh, uh, whatever nation's in charge of an area or you know whatever their empire is, that's what they tend to do. They have their rules, and you got to follow them. If you don't, they smash you. You know, so they can call it whatever they want. That's that's historically the case. But you brought up something, and we only have a few minutes, and I wish I had remembered it. Um, but you talked about resistance um, um, in terms of uh, resisting war, being a conscientious objector. And I believe that, um, Jeff, you are involved in an effort to support um, conscientious objectors in Russia and Ukraine. And I wish I had remembered that earlier. So please talk <laughs> about that because we do have to wrap up. I'm yeah, so well, sorry. No, absolutely. You know, Randy brought up the issue of uh, GI resistance. And, you know, we talk about all these big picture uh, things of what happened to who, when, and who's responsible for what. But when it comes down to it for me, it's like, what can I do as an individual? And that is to support war resistors uh, from every country. Uh, today, there are war resistors in uh, Russia, and we hear all about them. It's so exciting. I've, I've never read so much about war resistance, you know, in the last few months than you know, since the Vietnam War, maybe before. That's amazing. Um, but there's also uh, war resistors in Belarus, and, and there's also war resistors in Ukraine. Uh, you, the Ukrainian government uh, officially does not allow any uh, ma male fighting age to leave the country. Um, now, is that the most horrific thing that's happening? No, but it's wrong. You know, we should, you know, we should call them out. That is wrong. War resistors should be able to take safe refuge anywhere. So Courage to Resist, uh, we're collaborating with a Germany-based uh, Connection EV and running a hotline staffed with people who speak uh, both Ukrainian and Russian and giving people information on just like the day-to-day -day changes in refugee status. Um, and uh, just like the US, the Russian military has a very complex military law system and Putin's decision not to declare war has created many legal loopholes uh, for uh, uh, basically Russian reservists to uh, refuse call up. Um, so, you know, all that information is like helpful uh, to uh, basically, you know, Russians, uh, Belarusians and, and Ukrainians. So, um, yeah, go to CourageResist.org, find out more about that and uh, donate a couple of euros to our uh, hotline in Germany. Much appreciated. Wow, that's awesome work. Um, that is really awesome work. And um, in closing, I just want to say, I'm glad you brought that up, Mandy. And I wish that, um, that some of our colleagues weren't so busy trying to be anti-American imperialists to the point where they forgot, forget to be about peace. And we could be thinking of things like that or supporting that more. I, I, only reason I even know that is the case is because I called Jeff and was talking to him and then he, Oh no, actually I'm talking to somebody else here and he told me about it. And then I called Jeff to ask him about it. And I haven't seen that on any of our listservs. No one's really like, you know, they're talking about all kinds of stuff, but they're not talking about that. So I, I want to give you a lot of honor in doing that, Jeff. And uh, yeah, it's great. And thanks Apparently you. I need to do better on publicity. Right, thanks, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> better yeah. promotion. Yeah, people that want to support the Ukrainians are, are you know, uh, uh, you know, there's all these 
donate for various reliefs. And I think a very significant one would be donating to Courage to Resist just for this yeah. purpose. Yeah. We'll help with the publicity. Thanks, yeah. Kelly. Yeah. Well, thank you to all of you. I really appreciate it. And um, I guess that's it. Goodbye. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> nice to see you all. Thank you.